not quite yet, Eliasson. Uh, today, as we, as we begin, you see in our text this growing uh, persecution that is happening. Though there's peace at the end of this section, there is the sad reality of an increasing hardness that is coming upon the Jewish people. Though some are saved, uh, by and large, many of them are rejecting Christ. And so there is an amplification in the life of the Apostle Paul of the persecutions. He, he at this point, uh, in verse 26 through 28, tries to join the church. And <clears throat> the Apostle, after fleeing from this murderous plot of the Jews in the last section, now arrives in a different place, a decent ways away in Jerusalem, and he attempts to associate with the local church. You can read that with me in verse 26. It reads, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join himself to the disciples, and they were all afraid of him. For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Just some time ago, this man was known. It's not a, uh, an unknown figure. He's rather a notorious figure, especially to the church. And so he arrives being known as this, whose character had recently been severely persecuting the church. And so they, in hearing him and his testimony, were terrified. And, and they did not actually believe what he had to say. He, they, they perhaps thought that this was just another one of his schemes to hurt the disciples and to bring them off and change to prison. They conceived or they thought of him as a liar. He's not truly meaning what he has to say. And we, we should understand, considering his nature, that, that this is a, a, a likely situation. If somebody who is notoriously known for taking off your people and, and was willing to do all sorts of things and very zealous to drag you off to prison, we might understand uh, rejecting him trying to join himself to us. Is he real? Is he telling the truth? <clears throat> this they did not believe. And, and in fact, we also need to recognize that it would be absolutely foolish just to believe somebody right, right away with no care or even thought to the danger. So twice repeated in the Proverbs, this is in 27.12, the Proverbs say, The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on, go on and suffer for it. It's right to have a level of prudence. This is not where they erred. We'll see here in a second what their exact problem was. But we notice what is something very clear from the text is that one of the fundamental requirements comes up for joining themselves to the church. This is what we like to call in our modern terminology of church membership. 
what they would require from anybody so as to be known as, as a member of the church is that there would be a credible testimony of personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, they omitted Paul, quote, because they did not believe that he was a disciple. They did not believe the words that he said, namely that I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. They required this in order to become a member, and since they didn't believe it, they rejected him for it. As I will demonstrate here shortly, this is not part of their error to have a criteria for church membership, and in fact, they have a good one. This is, this is one that we try to have here. So what I want to do real quick before we look at where they fell off the horse in the wrong way, uh, let us see what they did right and have some doctrinal instruction on on church membership, where it applies to us here. Like the local church in Jerusalem, we here are seeking to properly maintain the purity of our church roles. And we should ask the question, what is biblical church membership? What What is it? If you were to give a definition, I don't, I don't know that many that I talk to can, but church membership in its very simplest and basic form is a congregation's acknowledgement, congregation's acknowledgement that an individual is a member of the body of Christ, the church, though they haven't been formally identified with the body. They are a member in reality of God's church, which transcends borders. Uh, Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch, when the eunuch believed in that sense, he was a member of God's church. He only had yet to be baptized so as to be identified as such. Here in the same way to be A church member, one must personally believe that uh, in Christ Jesus. So in this way, let let me put it in a fuller manner for you and, and bring it home using all the theological things that that actually means, what it entails for that person. When a church extends the title of church member and brings into the fellowship, what that says to the person by us both the pastors and the congregation, as it says that we believe about that person to whom it's been extended, that the Father in eternity has elected them, that the Son has died for them, that the Spirit has applied the redemptive work of the Father and the Son to them, such that they have been born again. They have been enlightened savingly to understand the gospel. They're Wills have been renewed such that they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and that they have been filled by the Spirit and sealed with the Spirit of adoption such that from the heart they cry, Abba, Father, even unto the final day of redemption. That's what it means to be a church member. And so it ought not to be taken lightly because it makes a proclamation about the reality that is in somebody's soul insofar as we can see. We, we say that <clears throat> this person 
has experienced the, the miracle that is salvation. And we believe that inevitably that person will be led to join with their family. That is, those other members who they cannot live without. Those members who they are tied to because we are one body, though many members tied to the local church. Salvation is not separate from the local church because this is God's way of saving us through the proclamation of the gospel in our ongoing relationship with his people. Now, in that case, when somebody becomes a member, it's our responsibility to confirm that they have a, a credible testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ, not that they have a mature, nor that they have a robust or polished testimony, but rather they demonstrate in their life, in their comprehension, in their words, that they understand what it means to trust personally in Christ Jesus. Not even that they could articulate all of their uh, beliefs in, in very accurate doctrinal form. <laughs> Rather that they, they truly have a saving faith because they know who God is in his triune nature, who Christ is, the Son of God, and that they are a sinner who needs to be saved by him and that they personally have seen their sin and they trust in Christ Jesus. This is then the entrance into the church whereby we acknowledge that through baptism, if somebody hasn't been baptized already, and then thereby are admitted to the Lord's table, the ongoing sign that we trust and believe in Jesus. Church church membership is essentially participation at the Lord's table where you are known and loved and administered to by the local elders of of a church in their government. So <clears throat> then those people who are admitted then go in, on, in an ongoing way, participate in the life of faith, and show that they are disciples by their actions. <clears throat> now, the church got a portion of that right. You must be a disciple. We don't believe you. <laughs> now, what they got wrong comes out with Barnabas. Read it with me in verse 27. It says, but Barnabas took him, that is Paul, and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Here Barnabas did not let fear cloud his mind. That's what happened with the disciples, they had, re- they had um, Barnabas, excuse me, had received Saul and led him to the authorities of the local church of all the early church, that is the apostles. And it's clear here, although in English it can be confusing sometimes with the he's, who that refers to, it's Barnabas is telling what happened to Saul. So he knew the testimony he had heard 
probably from Saul himself, from Paul. And he is arguing personally Saul's case before the apostles. He is hearing what is true about his account. He, he had heard a credible testimony to the Lord Jesus. And as we read the New Testament, we know that it is even the appointment to apostleship itself which is included. It, it is a massive thing that has happened. And so upon <clears throat> this consideration it, and reading it as somebody who's just on looking from the words itself, I grant that this may be reading in maybe a little bit too, too much experientially, but it, it's hard not to see Barnabas and his actions and, and picture him as passionately uh, arguing for his case. And whatever it is we understand that he was absolutely vindicated in this. The, the response of the apostles is in verse 28. They believed what Barnabas had to say about Paul and accepted him as a disciple. Truly Christian man. Verse 28 says, So he, that is Saul, went in and out among them, that is the apostles, at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul is accepted, and this, this phrase, he goes in and out among them, is, is what we use as an, uh, or call an idiom in English. It just simply means that he's, he was accepted into the fellowship, and he had a sort of free association with the disciples there. <clears throat> he, was, um, he was admitted into the fellowship. He became a member of it. And we should praise the Lord for Barnabas because he exercised courage. He likely had the same sort of trepidation because this was a bad man before. And yet he saw that there was the true hope of the gospel in him and said, I'm going to do what I believe is right. That is to vouch for somebody who has a credible profession, even though it might be intimidating. What a, what a great example for us. <clears throat> now, let me say a word of, of consolation uh, by application. There are scary things in this fallen world. There are devils. And wicked men and our very own indwelling corruption. And these at times break loose and threaten us, even assailing our souls and our confidence in such a way that we are, are tempted and often do fall into the sin of fear, whereby we shrink back from doing that which we ought to do. The church ought to have accepted him with his profession, been prudent, but accepted him just as the apostles did. But beloved, in all of our fears, you and I ought not to be anxious. We have a father who is in heaven, who has turned toward us in Christ with an everlasting love. When fears arise in your life, Tell yourself, and I ask you, do you not know that when your heart is in anguish and terrors have fallen upon you and you are trembling, 
with an overwhelmed soul. Do you not know that you have a redeemer who counts all of your tossings, who puts all of your tears in his bottle, who records all of your anguish in his book? Yes, you have a redeemer whom you can call out to. So call out to God, utter your complaint. He will not delay long over your grievances. He will, in fact, deliver you for he answers swiftly from his holy hill to save each one of us. So cast your burden on the Lord. Let him be the strength of our hearts. He will sustain you by his almighty power. Let your heart, even in the meantime, if, you, if troubles rise like this, let your heart in the meantime be steadfast. Don't neglect to sing and to give thanks to the Lord because he will fulfill all of his promises towards you. We need not fear a thing, beloved. Now also in our text, we see that there is something that was told in the testimony of Saul and then yet again he did it in verse 27 and 28 you'll notice that Barnabas when he's telling the story says that listen Saul our brother has been preaching boldly in the name of the Lord in the name of Jesus and then again we hear the report of what happened so he went in and among in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. This uh, was a validation, as it were, of who, who Saul actually was, Paul was, that he was found boldly preaching, both probably in public and in private, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And particularly when it came to evangelizing, We see that in verse 29, he is, this is the way in which, this is an aspect of what was happening in his preaching. Just as Stephen was proclaiming, so Paul, who recently killed Stephen and was a part of that, now is going to copy Stephen. He himself is disputing And he spoke and disputed, verse 29, against the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, but they were seeking to kill him. He had left his former life and he'd taken on this same life that Stephen had, which led to his martyrdom, a risky one at that. In our day, um, we need to think about this in terms of our, our evangelism. That's, that's what's going on in verse 29. He's boldly preaching, which we know what that is, so I won't say much about that. But the way that this fleshes out in terms of its context is with unbelievers. He <clears throat> is evangelizing. He is saying things in a particular way. And in, in our day... Many pastors could not be described in this way of preaching, nor could some of us in our speaking. He was both speaking and preaching. He was disputing. And the word translated here, disputing, is a good one. But, you know, just so we understand it, we could also translate it as debate 
or arguing. Debate, arguing. The word here is meant to communicate something that he's doing that is virtuous. Debating, arguing, disputing, all good things. Very virtuous way to preach the gospel. Although some are particularly gifted in this sense, like a Paul, certainly he has more giftings than everybody in this room. However, we should not set this aside as though this is not an essential part of our speaking the gospel and evangelizing. In, in fact, arguing and debating is an irreducible part of your evangelism. You have to do it. Each of us has to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. We have to make an apologia, which is a a reasoned argument. You think about it this way. You are convincing somebody in evangelism that they are deadly wrong. You are convincing them to and reasoning your way logically why they must turn from their sinful lifestyle to Christ lest they perish in the eternal fire. You are convincing them and they don't agree with you. And so you have to go back and forth. It's called debate. You have to reason with them, which is simply what an argument is. It's logically talking to somebody and giving them a coherent thought about who the Lord Jesus Christ is from the scriptures. And very often debate or arguing or disputing is, has a negative connotation in our eyes. And I hope to unveil it for you. It's not negative at all. It's in fact what we must do unless we go, hey, have you heard about the Lord Jesus Christ? Or we're talking about Christ to somebody and somebody says, I don't agree. And we just go, okay, why don't you agree? Push the envelope. Ask them. Tell them that they are wrong. You're, it's not your own opinion. It's on God's very word. And you may be the means by where, whereby the miracle happens. You can't convince anybody of your own power anyways. It is a miracle that anybody comes to Christ in the first place. So use your fleeting falling, failing words by the power of the Spirit and stand on the word. Proclaim and and get yourself involved in godly disputations with those who reject Christ because disputing with your neighbor over these things is love for your neighbor. It is the fulfillment of love. To hate them looks like silence much of the time. To hate them looks like I really rather be comfortable more than I want you to partake and to know what it means to be in fellowship with the living God. I like comfortability more than I want you to have eternal life. Let us not have that ever said about, that, about us in this way. Get into godly disputes. And I'll tell you right now, when you stand before God on the final day, you will never be sorry for telling somebody 
about Christ, how, how you love them. Only during this life could a devil make you feel ashamed for telling somebody how they might find life and happiness forever in the presence of God <laughs> to fulfill their purpose as a person. No, only devils would make you feel ashamed for that. Don't, don't listen to the roaring lion outside. Listen to the scriptures and love your neighbor. Now, in turning here, we see that there's a repeated cycle, and this will happen in the Apostle Paul's life. Many times, there is another plot that comes up, and then there is a providential finding out about that plot from the disciples, and then a fleeing. This happens again, and I won't <clears throat> say what I said last week, which is in, in terms of God's providence— God has already made known that he has other plans for the apostle. He has a course to run. He can't be taken. Just as John says about Jesus, they couldn't uh, bind him or take him away or make him king or push him off the cliff at a, at a time in Jesus' life. Why? Because it wasn't his time yet. The Lord has his particular time for Paul to become a martyr, according to church history. And this he will do in its time. But right now, his course is to be faithful, first to speak to the sons of Israel. And in baseball terms, he's batting a thousand. He's two for two, <laughs> preaching the gospel, looking to get killed. <laughs> and so he flees again. This is part of his lot in life. And we're very thankful for it because he, he ran it faithfully, even against serious odds. <clears throat> and so that's all I'll say about that. I, I want to really focus here in our last section on verse 31. Uh, because there's a summary statement that is made about the church. And this summary statement happens, it happens in every narrative of scripture. Uh, we'll see a number of them. And it's helpful for us because what it does for us is, first of all, it cordons off different sections of Scripture. So we haven't seen this one. You should uh, challenge you. Go, go back and Acts and see if you can find the last summary statement that we, we came across. And these distinct sections in, in the book of Acts are intended to, to help us, you know, frame the book and then also understand the, the larger theme of what, what's being communicated and what God is doing in his church. And even setting our expectations, because this isn't a, a day of, of heavy persecution thus far. I mean, it's happening twice to the apostle. At one point just recently, they all had to leave Jerusalem because it got so bad, right? Only the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, <laughs> I've never experienced anything of the sort. I can't imagine if uh, Gruesome Newsome did something so extreme that all the Christians had to leave California. <laughs> Hopefully that, that day doesn't, doesn't come like that. But that's what happened already in the book of Acts. And now Paul flees persecution all the way to Tarsus, well over 70 miles away. And he goes to his hometown, uh, potentially by ship. He goes to Caesarea on the coast and then maybe to Tarsus. Who knows? <clears throat> but here we find that Luke 
summarizes what's going on with five descriptions. Five descriptions. We're going to focus really on the second four, but we'll run through the meaning of these first, as we always always do. Always say, what does the scripture mean? And then we will talk about how it applies to us. So first, in the exegesis of the text, we see that in verse 31, says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace, first description, and was being built up, second description, and was walking in the fear of the Lord, third description, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, fourth description, and it multiplied, fifth description. So first, let us say that the church had peace, This description you'll know, we've heard Judea, Samaria, now is added Galilee. That is because these are respectively the three sections of Israel at the time. If you, if you look at maps of, of Israel, although in previous times, David and Solomon and the people when they inherited the land with Joshua had a a section beyond the Jordan at this time, this is essentially all of Israel from top to bottom. Everywhere that Israel had in their possession, all of it, all the church there uh, is having peace. That is, all the land of Israel at that time is experiencing a rest similar to the days of Solomon or of Joshua. This is the situation. They have a time where they are not warring against persecution. So an alleviation of those things, which were formerly relatively consistent that was going on now, they're in a state where there's a lack of turmoil from top to bottom. So if you look at your map, you got Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Judea at the bottom, Samaria, or uh, Galilee at the top. All of Israel geographically in that land, all the Christian churches, predominantly of ethnic Jews, were all, or ethnic (laughs) sons of Abraham, I should say, um, were at peace. They they didn't have to fear for their life at this particular moment, which is, Good. Now we, I, w- I want to really focus on what happens in peacetime. There's four descriptions. I labeled them just so you might remember them. Building, advancing, uplifting, multiplying. Building, advancing, uplifting, multiplying. First, building. They were, they were at peace and were being built up. Were being built up. So secondly, in this period of peace... Uh, there is the use of the verbal form of being built up. There is a, a parallel word that's that's a noun form, uh, we call it a may, which which is essentially a synonym, and it's more plentiful in the New Testament. So <clears throat> the the word itself, whether verb or noun, just simply means the the process of building, the process of constructing, and when it's applied to the church in this way, the idea is. The process, they are undergoing a strengthening of their, of their faith. 
the church is, is being solidified. You, you can picture this. This is an overarching picture of what's going on in peacetime. In peacetime, they're not getting comfortable and relaxing. They're not taking it easy. They are rather being strengthened. They're, they're uh, being disciplined for godliness. We can think of Ephesians chapter 4, which uh, classically uses this idea of building up both in terms of the building of uh, the body of Christ. It mixes metaphors, as it were, both a, a, constructing, a construction as well as a body. The, these things are used together in Ephesians chapter 4. And the idea communicated, you all will, I'll just reference it, that the church is, is built up through speaking the truth to one another in love. And that happens both on a uh, church governmental level and that it hurt, happens also at a personal level where you all as a congregation are built up in the faith and are speaking the faith to one another. And so we're working together and growing up into maturity Luke here is describing then how the spiritual lives and the Christian maturity of the the church is like a like a flower that's shot up and, and blooming in the sun of God's grace. That is, they're being built up. Now, secondly, in this set of four, they are advancing. Literally, it says they are they are going. In the fear of the Lord, a lot of translations will say walking because it wants to draw your attention to the the metaphor that's used many, many times in the scriptures and especially in the Old Testament. The, The fear of the Lord, as you'll know and I'll remind you, is the classic way to describe the the totality of faith of a of a believer. Uh, this week, I often consult when I'm translating a, a, a Bible called the NET, New English Translation, because they have translator's notes, and I, I find it very helpful, <clears throat> and they state things in, in fresh and different ways. And they had a great note that I want to read to you, just short, succinct, about the fear of the Lord, such that we understand it. It says, the fear of Yahweh is expressed in reverential submission to his will, the characteristic of true worship. The fear of Yahweh is expressed in reverential submission to his will, the characteristic of true worship. Although the faith we have resides in our hearts, it is not true faith unless it gets worked out in our hands. In that case, somebody can profess the faith but have a dead faith because it doesn't do anything. Here, they show that that they are, are, are believers by moving forward, making progress. Changing maybe maybe some of what they believe. That's how they're being strengthened. And, and they're not doing other things that they did before. And embracing other forms of obedience. They're, they're making progress in their actions. They're showing they have wisdom from God. Don't forget that just recently in Acts chapter 9 verse 2... 
Luke describes Christians, how they were predominantly known before the seemingly derogatory term comes up later in Acts, whereby people were first called Christians in Antioch. No one was called Christians at this time. In fact, chapter 9, verse 2 says that um, uh, Paul or Saul, as he's known at the time, is persecuting the church and he was seeking to bind anybody who belonged to the way, the, the road, the path. So Luke, therefore, in a phrase, shows that they are going in the fear of the Lord. That is, they are pressing forward on the path following after their Lord who has gone before them. He has paved the way, and we're followers of Christ on the way. They were advancing in this reverential fear to God. That's the second major description of what's happening in peacetime. The third is uplifting, uplifting. Some of your translations will be different. Uh, because of the word that's used here, um, you guys probably will all have heard, at least for me, about paraclete or um, paraclesis, which is comfort or encouragement. And so some of your translations will, will say that they have, uh, they're, they're going in the comfort of the Spirit or the encouragement of the Spirit. Sometimes it's hard to figure out which one as a translator to put, but the idea is uplifting, the uplifting of the soul, okay? So that's why I've termed it that way. And Luke's point is to show that this thing that's happening is of supernatural character. The church is making progress because the Spirit. He is the source of their comfort in the Lord, their encouragement, the being uplifted in their soul. This is not, although it's a different emphasis, it's not altogether different than being built up. It's really not. It's not altogether different than advancing. These things are all tied together. Rather, what this emphasizes specifically is not only that the Spirit is the source of this in the hearts of the people, but rather that they are experiencing a participation in God himself. That is why they're being uplifted, because they are knowing him, not just intellectually, though that is true, but they are knowing him experientially. We'll come back to these in just a second. Let me just final, finally say they're multiplying, building, advancing, uplifting, multiplying. It multiplied, that is the church increased in numbers. They were in a period of history where, uh, and, and we can say <clears throat> there may be periods of history where societies, right now the West is sort of having what we would consider like a, a decline in that it gets hardened and dwindles in the amount of faithful Christians. But we could say both historically and theologically, we can affirm that this will be the steady state of the church throughout all of history. The church is in, re in reality, if we're talking about on a global basis, has never declined. It's never waned. It's only increased and increased and increased, such that now, although not all these are Christians, 
uh, those who would profess the name of Christ are a billion on the planet, one-seventh of the planet. And it started very small in an upper room. That is because God is faithful. We may have a world whereby there are demonic forces and godless institutions and other intimidating and terrifying world powers. But we should remember always that none of these match the power of the gospel and the power of the spirit to resurrect and create by the word the church and to increase that numerically and not only to do that not only to make you a believer but to sanctify you to completely transform your life so that you don't interact with the world in the same way that you are different completely and so this is the way that Christ himself, who currently is ruling over all things and has specifically told us that he aims at bringing about all the nations under the sway of the power of his word and his gospel. Uh, we, we ought to trust him that we, we will be faithful despite the odds on the outside, as they would have had great odds at this time to preach Christ and see him add numerically to the church. All nations will one day come under the sway of his holy and almighty scepter. Lord, hasten the day. Now, I also want to give you a, um, in this, I I want to draw together uh, being built up, advancing, and uplifting. And I want to focus on uplifting, and I want to call you to self-examination, and I also want to give you a word of consolation. Let me grab a drink of water first before I do that. And this is where we'll wrap up. Notice that if we look at this fourth description, they were walking or, or experiencing the comfort of the Holy Spirit or the encouragement that comes from the Spirit. This truth is absolutely glorious, and I want to emphasize it. It it means the Christian life, not separate from other things, is experiential. It's experiential. It doesn't just reside in the mind. Through the redeeming new covenant cut in the blood of Christ, We are not only counted judicially right with God, that is like in the sense of the courtroom, we're not just merely legally counted righteous. That is true. It's glorious. It's what we call justification by faith. That is 100% right, but it's more than that. It's way more than that. What it means to be in Christ is we are brought into glorious fellowship with all of the triune God. We have become real partakers of Christ by the Holy Spirit who dwells among us here and in us personally. We have fellowship with God, communion, experience with him. 
And this experience I want to describe for you because when you experience communion with God in this way, it is more tangible than your very own body. It is thicker in sight than the densest fog. It is warmer than the coziest cottage. It produces in us more reverential fear than the blazing fire and tempest on Mount Sinai. It is more desirous than all riches and fine gold. It is more joyous when wine and grain abound. It is sweeter than the sweetest of honey and purer than the driven snow. I ask you, are are you experiencing fellowship with God in this way? Do you know God like this regularly, persistently? Is your experience robust or does his glory feel as though distant and, and obscured through the clouds? If your experience is not as robust as I describe, then what you must do is examine yourself in light of Scripture. You must not separate the experience of Christ from the being built up in the faith and the progressing, the the advancing in the fear of the Lord. All these things come as a package deal. You can't have one without the other. You cannot separate them. You will not experience God potently like a 120 proof whiskey. You won't experience him that way unless you are seeking to be built up in the faith. Unless you are immersing yourself and your family in the word and warmly embracing it as precious to your soul. Something you can't live Without, because in it you taste God, you see Christ, you experience the Spirit, putting all of your hopes and your dreams there, even if all your other ones perish. They're in Christ, and you would not be anything but separated from that, you would be attached. You will not experience the sweetness of fellowship with God that, that is described here, experiencing the comfort and the uplifting of the Spirit unless you are walking in, as Paul says elsewhere, the obedience of faith. It's a necessary component. <clears throat> I uh, encourage you to go to Psalm, uh, in your own time to Psalm 25.10. It uses this wonderful language of a, of a path just like our text here. And it says something along, uh, that I want to describe as, it says to those who faithfully keep his covenant and testimonies, our uh, experience or feel and taste the steadfast love and faithfulness of God himself. Those who com- keep his commandments Delight in his all-consuming love. And so if you're not experiencing that 
on a daily basis, the error and the way that you must correct most likely is that you are not being faithful in your Bible reading. You're leading your family spiritually um, as a man or submitting to your husband as a woman or, or children to parents. The reason you're not experiencing that is because you, you, you know the right thing to do in your life, thing you've been convicted about doing that you continue to put off and make excuses for, that you know is obedience to God, and you're not doing it. So, so God is withdrawn from you. The experience of the delight of faith. And so I call you to examine yourself and to press into all the ways that, that you know God wants for you in terms of obedience, how it is to love your neighbor, how it is to love those you're in relationship with, and how you are to be praying and, and reading and so forth and singing in your own time. I pray for all of you that all of these things would be gloriously true. And I can promise you 100%, all those who pursue the Lord will experience the overwhelming grace of God in, in, your, in your participation in all of his glory, such that it's as though it's right in front of you, is able to be tasted and brings a smile to your soul. With that in mind, let us finally pray and entrust our souls to the Lord before we participate in the supper.